As the hosts of the Application Security Podcast, we get the opportunity from time to time to mix it up. This week, we gather a few security articles, share a summary, and offer our opinions, for what our opinions are worth. The source of the articles is High Five, a weekly newsletter containing five security articles that are worth your time. We scour the interwebs looking for the best articles on application and product security and share those with you. You can subscribe to High Five on the Security Journey website. Hit us up on Twitter and let us know if you like this format and if we should do more of this type of content. We hope you enjoy this episode with Chris and Robert. I want to take a moment to introduce you to Security Journey. At Security Journey, we believe security is every developer's job. We work with our customers to help them build long-term, sustainable security culture amongst all their developers. Our approach is to provide security education that is conversational, quick, hands-on, and fun. We don't do lectures. Instead, we let the experts talk about what's important. The modules are quick, 10 to 20 minutes in length. We believe in hands-on experiments, builder and breaker style, that allow developers to put what they learned into action. And lastly, fun. Training doesn't have to be boring. We make it engaging and fun for the developers. Visit www.securityjourney.com to sign up for a free trial of the Security Dojo. The Application Security Podcast. Here we go. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Application Security Podcast. This is Chris Romeo, CEO of Security Journey, and I'm also joined by Robert. Hey, Robert. Hey, Chris. Good to be here. Robert Hurlbut, Threat Modeling Architect. All right, Robert. So today we're going to do something a little bit different from an episode perspective. We're going to talk about a couple of different articles that we've seen that are references or resources that we think people can use in our audience. And these articles are coming from another newsletter that I actually send out called High Five, which is five application security articles that are worth your time. And so we thought we would go through and use a couple of these articles and then talk about them a little bit just to make folks aware of the type of stuff that's available out there. Sounds good. So the first one is called Interest in Secure Design Principles is Increasing, Leading to Two Predictions. And so this article is from a good friend of the show, Brooke Schoenfeld, who is an advisory services director at IOActive. And so, Robert, I'll summarize a little bit about what, he, what Brooke is saying in this article, and then we can talk about it a little bit, see if we agree or disagree with the conclusions that Brooke's drawn here. And so the first thing that he says is InfoSec doesn't understand modern DevOps development and the huge shift that it actually entails. And so he's talking here about kind of DevOps and the fact that things are changing at a high rate of speed and, and security is not really able to keep up. I mean, what, what's your take on this, Robert? Well, I, I think that uh, in, in general, security is trying to understand or, or keep up, if, we, if you will, sometimes with what software development is doing. I mean, ideally, you want to, them to work together. And I think that's a, there's also a part of DevOps where everybody is working together much more than they probably did before. But uh, in essence, I think that, uh, yes, uh, security is, is still trying to play some catch-up and trying to understand 
a little bit about what's going on. And, and ideally, uh, as I think Brooke mentions here, he, he wants them to make sure that uh, they are working in sync. Yeah, and he also had an interesting point about automation here in, in that he says, common in DevOps is a myth that everything, including all security, can be automated. And this idea that you're taking out kind of the human element uh, when you go to a full-on DevOps. And so I think what he's arguing here is from a security perspective, there's always going to be some amount of human interaction that's going to have to be required to have a successful approach to security. And so the second thing he says here is, this is going to be a shocker now for anybody that knows Brooke, but secure design based on threat modeling. So I don't know that he's going to get a whole lot of argument from either of us about the fact that threat modeling is something that's going to be hugely important from a secure design perspective. He does make a couple of interesting points, though, about the fact that threat modeling is something that really takes a number of years to cause a positive impact. I mean, it'll cause a positive impact in small amounts in the beginning when you're when you're teaching folks about secure design and, and how to actually do threat modeling, but it's not something that's going to be first quarter that you start talking about threat modeling, everything is suddenly going to become super secure. Right. And in fact, I remember this one in particular, uh, this article, I, I did post it as well on Twitter or pointed to it. And there is a quote that he makes here that I also uh, spelled or kind of pointed out specifically. It says, over the next three to five years, organizations that have instituted a secure design program based upon threat modeling should see their number of design issues decrease significantly. And I thought this was really interesting because, first of all, over the next three to five years, we're seeing more organizations that will a- adopt it. And I've seen that already myself in the last number of years as well, more and more organizations are starting to, to pull in threat modeling. But in terms of overall, when do you see the results? It does take some time. and uh, But at the same time, you also see those results. You see uh, more and more people thinking about secure design and uh, issues that are related to that decreasing. So I agree with this uh, completely, but I really, just having him uh, state that, uh, not just the obvious, but also, what is really happening in the industry and in various industries today, uh, I think was um, – and, and the prediction of in the future, I, I think, is spot on. Yeah, I'm not normally a fan of the future predictions of next year and whatnot because I don't think we ever are super good at <laughs> – determining and actually reporting on what what's going to happen next year but i think this is a this is two really good explanations for the future of application slash product security and so i think brooks right on here with with both of these conclusions that he's drawn right so the second article that we have is in regards to mentoring and it's called developers mentoring other developers practices i've seen work well by george lee Araz, as I, I believe the gentleman's name who who wrote this and i, I originally chose this and, and shared it in the high five newsletter it's not a security article at all it's really about developer mentoring and because that's such an important topic for us, I thought there's some really interesting things here that are being suggested about ways to approach mentoring that we can pull out and apply from the security perspective, but also from the developer perspective as well. He made this first point that code reviews are frequent examples of informal mentorship. Is that something you've seen, Robert? 
Yes, actually. I was just thinking that in my own career as a developer over the years, whenever I've had opportunity to to do a code review uh, with another team member, uh, whether it would be on one side where somebody was more advanced at the time or senior than, than me at the time or the other way around uh, years later, in either case, I was either learning from someone, so it became a mentorship, or I was helping someone else understand better techniques and 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 ways of putting together code and so forth. And so absolutely, uh, I agree with that. It, it definitely becomes a mentorship, and it can go both ways. I mean, I always learn from someone when I'm teaching. I also uh, find that uh, you know when somebody is teaching me, they're learning something. They've mentioned that before. So it goes both ways. Yeah, I really think of mentorship as something that should be happening all the time. When any interactions that we're able to have, we should all be looking for those opportunities to say, hey, how can we help educate each other about things that we may not have as much perspective on? So another part of this that really caught my attention was he had this list of things to think about from the introductory meeting perspective. And I've had folks that have kind of reached out to me and have said, hey, you know, can you, will you mentor me? And I can't say I'm, I'm as good as this list about kind of setting up that first meeting and setting expectations. And so this really caught my attention to think about, hey, when we go to that first meeting, this is something that you can share with somebody who is a potential mentee to say, you know, here's some of the things that we should talk about. Um, background, where are we coming from? You know, um, what, what are the roles here? Kind of what are the expectations? What are the, some of the topics? How often should we follow up and discuss and have meetings and things? Um, how are we going to communicate back and forth? What are some short-term wins? You know, how do we evaluate progress? What are some challenges? You know, just really some good things to be thinking about from the beginning because we all, we're all real passionate about this, but we're busy people. And so these are just some things that really caught my attention that can help us as we're planning that mon- mentorship process. Right. So it's not leaving it to chance. You know, oh, well, whenever we get to it or if I have some free time, we'll catch up. You know, this is this is really good. It's it's setting a, a plan in place as well as follow up and, and make it concrete. So I, I like this as well. It's good. Good. Uh, I think recipe or menu, if you will, for for how to put a mentorship partnership together. Yeah. And then one of the other things that jumped out at me here is one of the statements is listen to what your mentee has to say. And I think that can be something that we get caught up in thinking, hey, well, I'm the mentor and I know lots about this topic. And I mean, I know you and I both, Robert, agree in this perspective that we have a lot to learn, right? Mm -hmm. Like we don't have, we have nowhere near to having everything figured out here. And we can learn a lot from everybody that we interact with. And so the mentoring process is a it's a back and forth and and you're both there to learn from each other. Mm, absolutely. And then one of the other things that I, I don't see in this, but it's probably in this article somewhere that um, I've talked about before on the podcast when we talk about mentoring, and that is I learned this from somebody else who has been mentoring me over the last couple of years, kind of more on the business side, but always give homework. Mm-hmm. And then what, what we, when do we have another conversation? We have another hum- conversation when the homework has been completed. I had somebody do this to me, and it really motivated me. I really wanted to have an opportunity to speak with this person on this topic. And so it allowed me to know, hey, here's what I have to do. Here's what I have to complete to be able to go back and have that next conversation. And it also protects the mentor's time because if somebody's not serious about it and they're not willing to put the work in, then... You know, we don't just want to jump. We don't want to just jump on a on a phone call 
once a month and, you know, just talk back and forth, right? We want to have some action, some type of a plan. So that's something that I've kind of taken away. Yeah, and I remember you mentioning that in a previous podcast. And ever since you mentioned that, I I thought about that, that, you know, that's, I think that's really, really good to, again, set context and, and help uh, shape the the mentorship and towards a goal, if you will, and continue to grow. All right, well, enough about mentoring. Let's go to our final article that we have here. And this is uh, by the good folks at Acunetics. It's called Seven Web Application Security Best Practices by Tomas Andraj Nideki. I might be butchering his name if that's the case. I'm really sorry, Tomas. Um, I chose this article to share because I'm always looking for things that are foundational, a lot of times we get caught up in diving deep into some technical point or uh, some new technology or some new approach that we can roll out across an organization. Uh, and, and I, so, you know, I, I sometimes jump past kind of the basic foundational things. And so uh, I think it's good. It's a good reminder when we see articles like this to, hey, stop and think about the foundational things and they can help people that are that are trying to build programs. And so first one on this list, Robert, is include everyone in security practices. Yeah, so that means, I mean, essentially, lots of different people, right? Uh, different, uh, obviously, developers, architects, but project managers and many others uh, involved in the practices. Yeah, I think we're both going to be thinking about, hey, this is an idea. This is something we want to do everywhere. Like, it's one of the, it's one of the, my, my, one of the things that I say all the time, and that is everyone's a security person. Right. So this is just bringing that idea forward and saying, "Hey, we have to let's just engage with that right from the beginning." This is one of the one of the, the the number one on the list of best practices that have been put together here. All right, the second one is adopt a cybersecurity framework, and so this one is gonna, I guess, going to be the first one that I'm going to kind of be scratching my head a little bit and going, "Hmm, really?" And so when they're talking about a cybersecurity framework, the, the article says, hey, cybersecurity is complex. You need a well-organized approach. There's a series of frameworks, and they provide a link to um, some of the other kind of frameworks that they're talking about. And when they're talking about frameworks, they're talking about NIST framework. You know, this is going to be um, cybersecurity framework, ISO 27001, 800-53, ISO 27005. Um, and even referencing things like PCI, COBIT, HIPAA. I don't know that this is the real place that I'm going to start when I'm thinking about web application security best practices. Right. I mean, what are you thinking instead? I mean, I've also thought about a secure software development lifecycle or something along those lines. But what are you thinking about that? Or is there something else completely or you do drop this one? No, I think, I, I think on day one, I'm going into a new company with the OWASP proactive controls mm. as my as my first thing. Like if I, if we can't get the OWASP proactive controls right, then there's no framework on earth that's going to save us from anything. That's true. That's and true. so, I mean, I'm not I'm a fan of NIST CSF and some of these other frameworks. I've used them. I've I've built education based on NIST CSF to help those folks that are maybe more in a risk management world that are dealing with security controls and things, but I'm going to fall on the OWASP proactive controls and say, that's my framework that I want to use at least for the first year, maybe a little bit more than the first year to be successful with building a new program. Mm. And ultimately web app best practice. Third one on hit on their list here is automate and integrate security tools. Coming back to automation and the importance of doing that in a 
kind of in, in this perspective of, of security. And so what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think there's a lot of things you can obviously uh, automate or should automate. And so wherever you can do that. Um, I know there's also talk about, you know, some things you can't automate as well. And so just be aware of the difference, uh, secure design tools and so forth versus automated testing tools. Um, but wherever you can, do it. Yeah, it's kind of bringing us back to Brooks' statement in that first article we talked about. Right. The right. fact that there is not automation for everything. And and threat modeling is a great example. I mean, there's some great tools out there available to do threat modeling. Um, you know, the, our, our friends at Arius Risk have a, a solid solution to help you do threat modeling. But that's not really automatable, right? It's not something we can put. I don't know, is that even a word? Did I just invent a word, automatable? I might have invented a word. Maybe, but um, <laughs> it makes sense, though. It but, makes I mean, sense. Arius risk is not something that's sitting in the continuous integration pipeline. It's not something that's being run with every release of software. It's a design time activity that's sitting above the pipeline itself. So I think we just got to keep that in perspective. All right. Okay, their fourth one was follow secure software development practices. Well, I, I got nothing on this one. Like, no, and I, I think this that? may have been what I was thinking about with number two. You know, how, how, certain practices that you have, you make sure you put in place very early on uh, to, to, to make sure you're following good, secure development um, methodologies and so forth. So uh, that's what I think I was thinking about for number two. All right. Their fifth one is use diverse security measures. So they're talking about pen testing, vulnerability scanners, dynamic scanning, interactive application security testing inside the runtime environment, talking about static um, WAFs, pretty much everything else under the sun. But their recommendation as a best practice here is use diverse security measures. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, I think that uh, it, it makes sense. And, and mainly because a lot of these tools are complementary, but also the fact that uh, a lot of these tools have very focused or very specific things they're looking for. And not all tools look for the same things. And so having that diverse uh, perspective or, or approach, I think, will help make a more comprehensive, uh, you know, review of your code, of your application, of the environment, and and so forth, to determine uh, many many different uh, potential vulnerabilities that you need to fix, or or other issues you didn't think about, and, and and so on. So I think there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, I'll even go a step further and say using diverse security measures within a given category is a good mm. thing. I, I've been interacting with some companies and they're like, oh yeah, we run two different DAST tools. Right. I'm like, why are you using two different DAST tools? Well, they don't actually report exactly the same things. And so th there's even a need for some diversity inside of a particular category here. But, um, well, that reminds me of the network security. I remember years ago hearing uh, different uh, companies, if they can, I mean, not all will do this, but consider having two different firewall vendors uh, for that same reason, that certain uh, one firewall has a particular set of vulnerabilities potentially and another one has a different set. And if I have two of them in line, um, you know, one will catch some things, the other will catch another thing, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and, and so just a, that perspective of sort of defense in depth, uh, you know, making sure you have multiple uh, techniques, maybe, in, as you said, even in the same category. Isn't it funny now we've reached a point where we don't even really have firewalls anymore? In the <laughs> right. perspective of 
And yeah, okay. I mean, I understand protecting your corporate network. You still have firewalls, but you think about kind of the modern application deployment model and you, the, the days of separate firewalls are really going away if they haven't left already. And so, mm, right. um, all right, the sixth one they had on this list is perform security exercises. So they're talking about mock attacks, red team versus blue team, um, doing maybe potentially tabletop or live exercises or experiments to demonstrate having somebody trying to attack, having the defenders trying to respond in real time. I mean, this is, I certainly get where they're going here. And I don't know how practical this is in a modern kind of production environment to be able to do, you know, live security exercises. It might be something that has to happen kind of from a, a staging perspective. And I, I guess I just don't know how much this is actually done in the industry right now. Not enough. Um, in fact, recently I saw this also as a recommendation. Uh, I was at a conference and, and someone had talked about this. And there was a, a question, you know, how many of you ha- in your organizations have a red team? Now, this is talking in this article is talking about an external red team. But how many in your organizations have a red team? And only one or two people held up their hands. Uh, now, there's maybe 30, 40 people in the room. Uh, but that shows you it's still really new. And uh, you know, how many of you know what a red team is? <laughs> you know, and not many hands went up for that either. You know, it, it, so it, it is still relatively new, uh, but I think its value may prove itself over over time. And and the reason for this is it's a little bit different, as I understand it, than running all these other tools, these automated tools. Uh, it goes back to a person or a team who can think outside the box and try different things in an automated tool wouldn't be able to do like phishing attacks or social engineering attacks or and so on to try to see are there vulnerabilities or other ways to get into a system that we hadn't even thought about or the tools certainly didn't try uh, and that we may be susceptible to and we didn't even realize yeah kind of brings some real life experience to outside the scope of what the tools and things can be able to do i guess my only concern with this and it, it kind of is a little bit of a concern from number five as well from kind of the penetration testing perspective is one of the things that, that, that I'm really is really bugging me and it's really something I'm going to talk a lot about in 2020 and beyond. And that's just the idea that you can't hack yourself secure. Mm. And so all of the you think about like all of the efforts and all of the dollars and things that are being put into penetration testing and attack and offensive. Everything is offensive this, offensive that, right? You and I both know that if you took a tenth of the money that you spent from offensive and, and invested it in the front side of your security development <laughs> lifecycle, right. right, you're going to get a much larger return on investment than you are by continuing. I mean, a penetration test has never fixed a vulnerability. That's true. And uh, maybe this is a controversial thing to say. Maybe people are going to get mad. That's okay, right? Because penetration testing doesn't fix vulnerabilities. It does not result. It may identify vulnerabilities. Of course, that is the value that penetration testing provides and full-on red teaming. But at the end of the day, you can't hack yourself secure. You can spend all of your budget on offensive certifications for your team and offensive penetration testing style engagements and things. But if you don't have people there cleaning up and fixing the problems, then all of that's for nothing. Absolutely. Correct. 
All right, the last one on this list that uh, Acunetics put out is number seven, maintain a bounty program. I feel like this is another loaded one for me here, Robert. <laughs> right. Well, and this is something I think we had, we had mentioned uh, before about where does a bounty program fit? Uh, when do you actually think about a bounty program? Do you think about it at the very beginning when you open the doors, or do you try to get some things in place first before you open everything to the to the world, if you will, and say, go ahead and try and, and see what you can find. Um, yeah, w- which comes first, right? That, that, I think that's one thing that we need to think about. Yeah, I thought you were going to say which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Well, that was, the, that was where I was leading to, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> which comes first, the bug bounty program or the secure development lifecycle? Right. Hopefully the secure development lifecycle. And so, I mean, I don't have a problem with bug bounty programs. I mean, don't get me wrong here. What I have a problem with is organizations that are too immature and want to engage with a bug bounty program because they think it's this is the cool thing that everybody else is doing. And then what ends up happening is they end up spending money to pay out on vulnerabilities that somebody found by running a scanner. Right. So my whole thing is get get your house in order first. Bounty programs are a good thing, but you have to have that foundational program, that foundational set of diverse security tools, the expertise in your developers, the set of the framework such as proactive controls. It's something that you're actually engaging on and and teaching your developers about and, and having them fix those types of problems. Once you've got those basic things figured out, then rock on. I mean, bounty programs are the way to go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it also, like you just said, points to if if you ran a bounty program before you even started all the other stuff that you need to start and somebody found you know some extreme issues, what are you going to do then? <laughs> you know, how do you how do you train the folks to fix those issues? How do you you know, you hope that all that stuff's in place. Because now you got to pay the bounty as well as got to try to figure out how to fix it, and you know, so, so try to do what you can yourselves first, and then when you're pretty solid with that, open it up, and then you'll be ready, more prepared. You can respond to the the bounty uh, findings and so forth. I believe. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. It's it's the, there's a time and place for bug bounty, and it's not going to be in day one in a new immature program. It's going to be a little further down the road. Well, hey. Robert, thanks for uh, taking the time to go through this list of things. And for our audience's sake, uh, we got these articles. This is based on a collection of, of things that we send out at Security Journey called High Five, which is five security articles that are worth your time. Uh, we pour through a bunch of different articles and things that we find on Twitter and lots of other places, and then we curate this into a list. And so that's that was the source of these today. Um, if you want to sign up and, and get this as a regular email newsletter, that's something you can do at the Security Journey website. And hit us up on Twitter. Let us know what you think about this style of episode where we're looking at some other people's articles and, and kind of given you our opinion let us know if you like this format and whether we should keep doing this more thanks for listening to the application security podcast our intro music is 8-bit kung fu by born and tj and our outro music is southern delight by stefan kartenberg you'll find the show on twitter at appsec podcast or on the web at www.securityjourney.com slash application dash security dash podcast you can also find Chris on Twitter at EdgeRoute and Robert at Robert Hurlbut. Remember, security is a journey. 
not a destination.